Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate or lonely place and have a rest. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Now notice what Mark says. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, and just think of the oddity of what he says. You give them something to eat. There's 5,000 men and as many women and as many children. Jesus, send them away to get some. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And 15,000 people. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate of the loaves were 5,000 men. Probably only the disciples witnessed the miraculous events. Immediately, he made his disciples get back into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. He sends them off in the boat. He stays on the shore. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. A more colloquial translation, they were straining at the oars. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves. 
for their hearts were hardened. Well, let's pray that God will speak great encouragement to us as a church. Father, in light of these major contexts in our church life, our commitment to train gospel workers, our commitment to all be trained to read the gospel with people who are not Christians, and our search for a home not to settle in, but to see this vision realized from, as we feel at times, we're straining on the oars. Lord, encourage us as a church. From your word we ask tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, two headings on the sheets, one from each of these miracle accounts. Starved of the word and straining in the storm. Starved of the word and straining in the storm. Mark's gospel was written for two reasons. One, principally, to put into the hands of Christians a manual for evangelism. And in your hands, as a manual for evangelism, Mark records a whole series of miracles. There is no greater miracle, bar one, than the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle that trumps the feeding of the 5,000 is the raising of Jesus from the dead. It is an astonishing display of miraculous divine power to feed 15,000 people with the women and children, even though maybe the children didn't eat a lot, out of five loaves and two little fish. It is astonishing. It is a cast iron case for the divine man. That's the point if what's in your hands is a manual for evangelism. But Mark's gospel has another purpose. It is in the hands of Christians, not simply a manual for discipleship, but a manual for training people for gospel vision. It is a wonderful encouragement to those engaged in gospel ministry, which is us all in the ways that I have described ABC tonight as the preface. Training workers, all of us being trained, finding a building with vision as a platform for gospel work. Mark's gospel speaks right into the heart of that kind of gospel vision. And it's the training line that we run through tonight. And if you are listening to Mark's gospel, this little section, 630 to 50, as a church engaged in gospel vision, it'll speak to us under these two headings. The environment, the country, the city, the community that you are placed in is starved of the living word of God. And Jesus turns to us and says, you feed them. And we turn to him and he says, how can we? And he turns to us and he says, trust me, it's a miracle ministry you're engaged in. And as we're straining in the storm, as churches engaged in gospel vision must surely be, Jesus says to us, trust 
me. Notice he does not want to come into the boat with him. He wants to pass them by. He wants them to learn that when he is not with them physically, they must trust him. And he wants to teach them here, not, I think, that he will calm the storm. Because when a church is engaged in gospel vision, there is rarely a calm sea. He wants to teach them that as he passes them by and goes to the other side, they too will get to the other side. That's the point in terms of training. Now, let's look at each in turn, starved of the word. The miracle here, uh, recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, If you were going to pick any miracle to go in your Gospel, you would pick this one. It goes without saying that it actually happened. It is amazing how much ink has been spilt in Bible commentaries to try to explain away that this was an extraordinary evidence of human generosity inspired by Jesus' brilliant oratory. Of course, if this did happen, all arguments to say that Jesus was not divine melt away. Now, why does Mark include this miracle? Each evangelist includes it for a specific reason. It comes in Mark immediately after the section 6, 1 to 29, where Jesus has sent out his disciples to prepare them for what their ministry will be like. He sends them out as word gospel ministers and says, you will experience a storm. And when you are rejected... Shake the dust off your heels and move on somewhere else. Verse 30 records a natural and uh, expected juncture in their ministry, a chance to take stock of what has been happening. The apostles gathered round Jesus and said to him uh, what had happened. They told him of the rejection. They told him how tough it was and concerned for them. And it's entirely legitimate. They've not had a chance to eat. Verse 31a Jesus suggests they go off to some quiet horner for a rest. They needed a time to rest. Busy ministers do. Verse 32, so they went off by themselves to a solitary place. Their peace and quiet, however, is short-lived as the inevitable crowds make their appearance. I have a friend whose church has begun to grow with people who are not Christians. And he was telling me there is no end of complaining in the church because it has begun to grow with people who are not Christians. They just pop up all the time and take up their time. Isn't that wonderful? I think we can sense the disciples' human nature and frustration. I guess they would have been angry and resentful of this intrusion. Jesus' reaction, though, to the crowds is striking. Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, divine compassion, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, no other evangelist, Luke, John, or Matthew, includes that phrase. In the other Gospels, Jesus had compassion on them. In Mark's Gospel, though Mark's key to what this means in his Gospel, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's unique to Mark. It is 
their spiritual hunger, not their rumbly tummies that draws the Lord's compassion. It is not to say that the Lord is indifferent to our physical needs. I have a a Bible commentary that seems to spend 20 pages explaining that it doesn't mean the Lord was not indifferent to their physical needs. How could it mean that? He's about to feed them because they're hungry. But the primary deprivation here, the primary hunger is spiritual, not material. Now, uh, the context in 630 to 44 is different from the context in 6.1 to 29. No longer the hostile world, but the hungry church. In contrast to the world that despises the word and its messengers, the people of God here gathering around Jesus are desperate for the bread of life, desperate for that knowledge of God that only Jesus could bring from heaven. Now, think forward to two years from now in our church Let's say we're in a long-term home. We're absolutely not settled, though, because the pews are beginning to fill up, if there are pews or seats, with people who aren't Christians. And if God brings them in, they will be hungry for the Word of God. And they will need fed the Word of God. Scott talked about how God is sovereign in evangelism. God will put the hunger into the human heart. But somebody's got to feed them. The phrase sheep without a shepherd is used in the Old Testament to refer specifically to the lack of authentic spiritual leadership. In Numbers 27, 15, for example, Moses, conscious that his days are numbered, looks to the Lord to appoint a successor. May the Lord, the God of the spirits, Numbers 27, 15, of all mankind, appoint a man, a leader over this community to go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. And this is not a picture of the amiable, gentle shepherd with a lamb under his arm with his crook, but a strong leader of God's people. And the point the Lord Jesus is making is that on that hillside that day, There are thousands of hungry souls for spiritual food. And they have been starved by the vacuous, empty, gospel-less religion that they have been taught. While Mark is writing in a particular historical context, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, he has an eye to the contemporary church in his day and in our day. Indeed, he is writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the church in every age. The Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd, and the pastors of the church were and are called to be his under-shepherds. And how often today, think of Scotland, or Ireland, or England, or Wales, or a foreign country, if you come from another country in the world, How often today in cities, in this city, in towns and villages, congregations of God's people are all at sea, scattered, lost and confused, because their spiritual leaders will not feed their hungry souls. 
everywhere in our city, everywhere in our country, everywhere in the villages. Think of the highlands of Scotland, hundreds of little communities. Most of these communities without shepherds. Where there are shepherds, many of them are not feeding the hungry sheep with the life-changing word of God. More often than not, the plight of God's people is a famine of the word of God. And having made his diagnosis, Jesus prescribes and delivers his medicine. Divine compassion leads to divine action. What does he do? He gives the people, men, women, and children the word of God. Verse 34b, so as a result of his assessment of their spiritual need, he began teaching them lots and lots and lots. Jesus went on and on and on in his sermons, taught them spiritual stuff. Their greatest need was that he fed their souls. Now, let's get to the application. Given the lateness of the hour, the twelve suggest to Jesus that he sends the people to the local Aldi or Tesco or whatever it is, farm shops, corner shops, supermarkets, to get some supper. Sensible, practical advice. But Jesus responds, astonishingly, he says, you give them something to eat. And in the Greek, the emphasis is on you. You do it, you do it. It's your responsibility to feed the vast and hungry multitude. You see the point? Feeding the flock is the task of the chief shepherd. It was the task given to the apostles. It is the task of the Christian minister. Jesus turns to those in gospel work, whatever it is, and he says, you feed them, you feed them. How will they respond? Well, the reaction is one of incredulity, words bordering on rudeness with a strong dose of sarcasm. And effectively, they said, the text says, that would take eight months of a man's wages. They said, well, how about then we just go and sell all our possessions and empty all our bank accounts and just blow all the money on food. Send out for the food. It's impossible. And there would have been no shops or no farms. Jesus knew it was impossible what he asked them to do. How can they possibly supply such a great need from their meager resources? How on earth will Scotland ever hear the word of God again? It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. How will the city, communities in darkness, where little congregations of God's people are not being fed ever hear the word of God. It's impossible. Jesus, you can't be serious when you say to us, you do it. You can't be. What it takes, of course, is a miracle. Now, Jesus had already made it plain that feeding the flock of God is a miracle ministry. It requires supernatural power In spite of the apparent weakness of the word and its proclamation, God will multiply the fruitfulness of that word. Weak words on the evangelist or the preacher's lips, but empowered by the Spirit of God, mighty words yielding a miracle harvest. I got a a letter from somebody who had listened to a sermon online that I had preached, and it made me shudder to think about how careful I need to be when I teach the Bible. It was anonymous, the letter. 
We have no idea when the word of God is preached what impact there will be somewhere in the world. We have no impact or no idea what might happen if a student is converted in the missions week of this or another university. Who will they tell? Our task is to give ourselves with all our energy to the proclamation of the Word of God, to training gospel workers in response to God saying, you do it, you do it, you do it, and trust that that ministry is a miracle ministry. Jesus repeats the lesson here in Mark 6, step by step almost. He leads them through the logic. First he says to them, what resources do you have? How many loads do you have? Go and see, go and see, search out. And you would almost think that Jesus might have worked with 50 loaves and 40 fishes, but it's just so pathetic, it doesn't even make it into one little shopping bag. So weak, so weak, so weak. So weak the state of our country spiritually that we should just give up and chuck in the towel. Or why don't we just try and train just a few gospel workers here and there do what we can in our churches to train a new generation and see what God will do. And what if, what if these workers that we train and put out into this country go into their churches with the DNA inbuilt in them to train gospel workers? What right do we have in our generation to see the fruit? One, two, three generations. God will say to us, maybe, or our grandchildren, I said to you, you do it, and you did it, you trusted me, and look what happened in the future. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, gives thanks, and he breaks them, and gives them back to the disciples for distribution. And these feeble and frail men as they were at that time, who would be the great apostles of the church, witnessed, and I think only they witnessed, this astonishing miracle of multiplication. From five loaves and two fishes, Jesus fed 15,000 people. The spiritual point, there is a famine of the Word of God. You feed them. How can we feed them? Watch me. Watch me. It's a miracle ministry. It's a miracle ministry. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, nowadays it goes online. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, there is great potential for God to do what he will do. It's almost as if in the church in the West, that potential is checked because God's people will not believe him when he says, you get on and do it. Just do it. Trust me. Now, the applications to us as a church, there is a huge need in our nation for training gospel workers. Less than 2% of our population have any possibility of access to a living gospel church. 2% is tiny, tiny. Churches across our nation are closing weekly. They're shutting down. Sometimes that's a good thing. But who's going to fill them? We appeal to Jesus and we pray. What do we pray? 
that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus turns to us and he says to us, you do it, you go. And your little churches train a new generation of gospel workers for the harvest field. But we can't. It's too hard. It's too expensive. It's too big a task. It's too black. It's too bleak. It's too long. It's too difficult. Jesus says to us, trust me. Just do it. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me way down the years beyond the generations that you will see. But make sure that you train them well. So they will go into their churches and multiply this kind of vision for the future. You know, the hardest thing to get money for in the church in this country is training a new generation of leaders. You can get money to do this, that, and the other. You can get money to start this, that, and the other youth group. I'm not being pejorative about that. It's true and it's wonderful. But try and get money behind a vision to train a new generation of people who will lead gospel communities across our nation. And there's like a brick wall. Why? Because if you break down that brick wall, significant progress will come. Most of the money that is being poured into gospel training in Scotland is coming from other countries. Most of it from England. That's striking. Who have a vision to invest and fund people for gospel training in the future. You do it. We can't. Yes, you can. Get on and do it. And to the individual concerned, you do it. No, I can't. I feel weak. What gospel minister has ever felt anything other than weak who is worth his salt? Every day, gospel ministers and maps and trainees, whoever they are, want to chuck in the towel. Just like Peter and James and John and Thomas and the apostles. Jesus says, do it. Do it. And second application under this miracle, our gospel project. My big fear in the gospel project is that in a year's time, 200 of us will be equipped to read Mark's gospel. You know what my big fear is? There'll be nobody to read it with. We'll all scrabble around. Read it with each other. Unless we believe that doing that is because out there somewhere, I don't know where they are, there are hungry souls whom God will put into our path. If our hearts are for these hungry souls, and we learn this gospel not as an academic exercise, but because we have a burning passion to feed these souls the truth about the Lord Jesus. So the gospel projects touch and go. But what a wonderful thing it would be if a hundred or two hundred of us are trained to study and read Mark's gospel and we discover a little bit down the track, and there are so many reasons to say this would not happen, 
and I'll tell you the biggest one in a minute. What a wonderful thing it would be is if all 100 or 200 of us were employed in feeding hungry souls because they were there. You know the biggest obstacle to it happening? I think, according to Mark, Jesus says to us, you do it, and we say, no, we can't. It's not going to work. Can't do it. It's not going to work. Just chuck in the towel. Trust me, he says. Trust me, trust me, trust me. All over our university in the next two or three months, it's hard for these guys to share their faith. They're going to want to chuck in the towel in their little ways with their flatmates and their friends. And Jesus says to them, you do it, you do it. You invite them. You read Uncover John with them. Now, the second miracle, in a word or two, I promise. The observant student of Mark will notice that we have been in a boat with disciples in a storm before. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Remember that storm? Jesus was asleep in the cushion. And it riled the disciples that he was asleep. Because they thought when he was asleep that he wasn't A, omnipotent, and B, trustworthy. And now he's not asleep on a cushion in the boat. He's just not in the boat at all. And he's up on a mountain. When Jesus goes away in Mark's gospel to a solitary place to pray, he's always praying with a crisis in his heart. The crisis in Mark chapter 1 is in his own ministry. God has sent him to preach, and he is tugged in his divine compassion to do all manner of other things. Crisis 1 that he resolves. Later on, he prays in Gethsemane as he contemplates the agony of suffering and wrath. And here he prays up the mountainside, and he looks out, and he can see in his divine sight away in the distance this little church, this little bunch of believers in their boat, and he's saying, Father, will they trust me without me being in the boat with them? Will they believe in me? Will they believe that I say to them, go and be my witnesses and trust that that word that they proclaim is miraculous? And uh, we find the disciples... And it's a wonderful translation. I think Eugene Peterson has it as straining at the oars as Jesus has sent them to the other side. And Jesus intends to pass them by. And they see him. And he sees them. And that little moment, he realizes that he cannot pass them by. He's got to get into the boat with them. And they're afraid. And they do not understand. And they do not yet believe in him and the power of his gospel and the power of his omnipotence. And their hearts are hard. Their hearts are hard. Now, it is not a huge concern to the Lord Jesus that we are in transition without a home to land in. He will find us, one, and he will lead us to the other side. But it's not going to be an easy passage across the lake, and it's not been either. 
what he is concerned with as we travel to that other side is that we trust him as we are straining on the oars. And his last word to us tonight, it's, it's a tough little line. And I worry of this often as a pastor, your shepherd, is that our hearts will be hard. Hard hearts. Jesus needs soft hearts, willing hearts, obedient hearts, loving hearts, trusting hearts. That when we find ourselves straining at the oars on the lake, he is right with us, even though he is not in the boat beside us. So there's, I hope for you, some encouragement from Mark's gospel to us as a church tonight. In our commitment to train gospel workers, feeble as our attempts are, and I want to encourage those here who are training as gospel workers, feeble as you feel you are, Jesus says, do it. Just do it. Trust me. Trust me that if you train somebody to be a preacher and send them into a church, they are engaged in a miraculous ministry. And don't think in the immediate short term. Think of two, three, four, five generations down the track. And so our elders made a good decision in this time of transition and this time of austerity. We all know about austerity in the world. Austerity comes to churches when they need to buy buildings. And rightly so. In this time of austerity, the one thing we will not stop doing is training gospel workers and supporting gospel partners. Stop everything else, but we keep training and keep sending and keep training and keep sending. And as we engage in the gospel project, so chock full of risks, I want you to pray with me. And I'm long enough in the tooth now as a gospel minister not to hype up stuff. I want you to pray with me that the empty seats in whatever vision we will never settle in, whatever building we'll never settle in, we'll find one though, we'll not settle, whatever it is, that these seats will fill up with people who are starved of the gospel and who are hungry. And we will find that they need all of us to feed them. How wonderful that would be. Jesus says to me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Let's pray that'll happen. Father God, we pray that uh, our doing this uh, slightly unusual thing tonight would be an encouragement to us as a church. We thank you, Lord, for the long heritage in this church to train gospel workers. And we pray that we would keep on doing that with all our energies, conscious of our weakness, conscious of your commission. We pray that those who are being trained here and those who have gone, when they feel they cannot do it, we pray that you would cause them to lay hold of the promises in your word that they can because you have asked them to do it and they can trust you. Lord, we commit the gospel project to you. It is full of anticipation, full of risk. But long we long, Lord, for people to come who do not know the Lord Jesus, that our training might have a real spiritual need. We pray, Lord, that as we wait for a home, 
and we want one, and we need one, and we ask you to give us one quickly. We pray that as we strain at the oars week by week, as it were, that we would not for a moment stop trusting you. Lord, lead us to that place of vision, not settlement. And Lord, whatever happens, we pray that our hearts will not be hard, but that we will learn a deeper compassion and love, perhaps than we have ever known before, for those who are like sheep without a shepherd, starving to death, and who desperately need the living, life-changing Word of God. Lord, encourage us as you send us home tonight from your word. For we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake.